welcome to the Digital Marketing Professor Series, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk. Today, we're talking about omnichannel marketing strategy with Axel Stock, Associate Professor of Marketing at the University of Central Florida. Axel, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. So for this digital marketing series, we've been talking to professors across the country uh, to really get a baseline level of what are the topics and the discussions that are really being had around digital marketing. Tell me just a little bit about the course itself that you're teaching, I guess an overview of the syllabus. Uh, yeah, in marketing management, uh, we develop uh, the structure of a marketing plan. So it starts with understanding the internal and external environment of the company very well. We call it uh, the 5C framework, customers, company, competitors, contacts, and collaborators. And that um, provides a building block for developing goals for the planning horizon. Uh, and it's the last step. We then uh, develop strategies in the four piece product, price, place, and promotions uh, to actually um, achieve those goals. In uh, marketing strategy, it's more about uh, you know looking at specific uh, case situations of well-known companies in most cases uh, that um, and basically really identify the problem. Uh, that these companies are facing uh, at the time of the case and then go from there to um, analyze the situation, but then uh, very quickly come to possible solutions. And we identify different alternative solutions and hopefully at the end of the class, we come to uh, a conclusion about what the best recommendation would be. Here, when we talk about uh, digital marketing, it is basically important to uh, apply the concepts um, that have been known for a long time uh, to a new topic. So the challenge is really to understand that uh, there's an operational level of uh, digital marketing that is important to know. And then there's a strategic level as well, uh, where companies have to make decisions about investments in different uh, tools that are available to them. So of the of the, the the courses that you're teaching there, both marketing management and marketing strategy, what do you think is the most challenging to be able to teach in a university setting? Yeah, I uh, observe that there are uh, developments where students are required to be form more familiar with data analysis and even going uh, towards understanding programming languages. So uh, more recently at UCF, uh, we are now contemplating making changes where we have uh, an additional course where students uh, are maybe required to uh, learn something like uh, Tableau or R to basically uh, be able to manage and uh, then understand the data that is now uh, even more widely available. Uh, before that, we talked about uh, the omnichannel retailing and uh, through this uh, wide spectrum, uh, a lot of data is collected and has to be understood. Is that a big shift that you're seeing now that we are collecting so much customer information? There's mounds and mounds of, of data that need to be processed in some way and, and made accessible to create conclusions. Is that something that's, um, that's changing rapidly since, you know, even five years ago? 
Uh, I would say so. Um, 10, 10, 20 years ago, uh, we studied statistics to uh, deal with the challenge of uh, drawing conclusions from very limited sets of data. So only experts in uh, statistics and uh, marketing research were able to do so. Uh, but now, given that um, you know more information is uh, available to everybody, um, we may be able to use uh, different methodologies, but then everybody has to be able to do so. So within the retail space, um, like like I said, you know, there is so much data that's available. Um, has it been that this data analysis has largely been left to the, the data scientists? Um, and are you seeing that there's a case for all marketing students to really dive into and understand uh, the just the sheer computation of of data. Um, I think uh, you know if you look at the growth in uh, job availabilities, then uh, the field that you mentioned, data science and data analysis, uh, sees, uh, sees basically a large growth. Uh, so that's an opportunity for students, but uh, not all the students may uh, be a good fit for that area. I mean, there will continue to exist uh, creative um, jobs uh, within marketing and uh, sales jobs as well, where just uh, at the very operational level, you can also pursue a highly successful career. Uh, I just would think that at the managerial level, um, more understanding of um, how to manage and analyze data will become more and more important. Well, yeah, you, you, you said something interesting then that you know, marketing of the marketing students coming in, there is still a, um, a good number of creative positions and creative people mm -hmm. uh, that are pursuing marketing. But with the increase of um, of data available, and then now the um, more more conclusions that can be drawn from that. Do you see that shifting? Do you see um, a, a larger wave of um, of mathematicians and scientists coming into marketing versus the uh, the creatives and the ones that maybe twenty years ago would have made decisions based on intuition? And now they're using a whole other process for for making, you know, marketing decisions. Yeah, I, th I think the uh, decisions at uh, the higher level of the organization will be driven more by, you know, scientists increasingly. So uh, you mentioned something uh, uh, very interesting, and that is basically currently in those uh, more. Uh, academic uh, areas within big organizations, actually, uh, you know, you would have in positions that perhaps traditionally would be um, filled with marketing people. Now you have basically physicists, you have engineers, um, you know, because they have basically more background in uh, programming. Uh, and so since these large sets of data need a particular skill to to first collect them and to analyze them, uh, the traditional marketing graduate would not be able to do that. So you've been there at University of Central Florida for a number of years. I, I think I read 15 years that you've been there. And since then, you've done some extensive research, especially I read within 
game theory and applying that to marketing strategy. For somebody that doesn't really understand uh, game theory and how that actually applies to marketing, will you explain kind of that in, in plain language for us? Yeah, basically I look at uh, how uh, companies interact with each other uh, at, a, um, at a very general level. And uh, in that uh, context, I'm basically studying uh, particular types of marketing decisions that uh, firms could take. So as uh, if you think uh, of a game, then you have in a game, you have players and players can take actions and these actions affect the other player. And that is basically where I see the, where the similarity is to business interactions. So in business, the players are companies and consumers. And the consumers can take actions and the companies can take actions. They can change prices. They can launch advertising. And the consumers, they make decisions. They decide uh, which provider to buy from and uh, whether they uh, submit a review on a website or whether they um, register on a website to be able to make a purchase. So they also take actions. And uh, in game theory, basically, we look at consumers making and uh, look at finding an equilibrium where all these participants make decisions that are best for themselves, uh, given that they understand that others are also making uh, the same type of decisions, uh, decisions that are best for themselves. And then we can basically derive optimal marketing strategies, what is the optimal pricing strategy, optimal advertising strategy, but always in a very, um, let's say, uh, a constraint uh, world. It sounds, I guess, to, to my untrained ear that uh, that's a, you're talking a little bit about um, gamification and for customers or consumers or, or even visitors to, to a website, um, incentivizing them to participate in reviews or reward programs or frequency programs, right? Uh, not exactly, but that is also an interesting topic. Um, I, I'm basically um, talking about uh, research methodology where uh, we use uh, mathematics to, uh, to understand what is optimal choice in a particular situation. So let's uh, just consider one uh, specific example. Let's suppose uh, two car manufacturers Basically, they want to market a, a new uh, car, an SUV, and uh, consumers don't know about this car. So these two car manufacturers, they compete with each other. Uh, the two basic decisions they have to make uh, are setting a price for, for this car and also to make a decision about advertising intensity. How many consumers should actually be exposed to the advertisement? Because advertisement is... Uh, expensive, it might not be the best choice to educate all the consumers. And now uh, consumers, for example, nowadays, they would have uh, a choice to view the ad or they can maybe zip through the ad using a DVR. So now if you are interested in learning what is the effect of, you know, an increase in DVR penetration on the advertisers' pricing strategies, advertising strategies, and optimal profits, we would basically maximize the firm's profits given the reactions of the consumers who do what's best for themselves. And then we uh, look at that uh, outcome and we see uh, through an, uh, you know, an exercise 
how will that profit and advertising choice and pricing choice change as the percentage of EVR owners increase in the market? That would be basically uh, one study that I, I did in the past. When we talk about omnichannel, uh, we're, we're talking about that, um, I guess, that narrowing gap between brick and mortar retail and e-commerce or online retail, that those those two um, seem to be blending. Will you, uh, will you share some insight on just how this is getting closer together and how those two previously unique experiences have melded into, um, into one omni-channel experience? Yeah, uh, that's a very good question. So let's just uh, take an example of a, a case that I've taught uh, about JCPenney is one retailer, uh, that uh, uses an omni-channel strategy. So they have an app, they have a website, and they have stores. And, um, you know, they compete with uh, competitors within their department store category, for example, Kohl's. And they also compete with Amazon. Amazon would be the pure uh, online player. And, um, you know, because of its sheer size, Amazon has a stronger power uh, in general to uh, provide lower prices. But, um, you know, how can JCPenney now use the Omnis channel strategy to get a competitive advantage uh, versus Amazon? For example, they can, uh, they can provide something that's called uh, order online and uh, pick up in store. So Amazon, you know, although they have uh, optimized their delivery times, uh, may in some cases not be able to uh, provide the item that you want, the clothes that you need for a particular event to go to in quick of en enough of a time. But if JCPenney has that suit available to you close to your location within the store, you could order it online. Uh, order it from the convenience of your home, uh, not having spent time uh, to go there and to shop, but then uh, you can pick it, up, pick it up maybe on the same day uh, and have it ready uh, when you need it. And uh, one of the strengths of JCPenney and some other uh, omnichannel players is that they have a very wide uh, network of stores, which basically allows them to, to compete with this strategy uh, order online and uh, pick up in store uh, for many customers. And what we also uh, know is that once a customer comes in the store uh, to pick up this item they selected, oftentimes uh, they in fact uh, pick up enough, uh, enough uh, sorry, pick up additional accessories uh, for that suit, maybe a tie, maybe a shirt. And on these items, uh, JCPenney can make additional margins. And that's why it's a, a smart strategy. Exactly. And that's that's what I was, I was going to ask. You know, it seems like if you've got that in-store option, um, just like at the grocery store, um, when you've got those impulse buys, or um, even now you're seeing it at, at um, retailers like TJ Maxx and those types of places, they have these impulse buys um, along the checkout line. So it's sort of a similar thing then that by getting them in the store, you've probably already um, solved the biggest hurdle and that's just getting people in. Uh, and once you have them there, then they figure, well, okay, I see a sale on this or, or, you know, I could use some, you know, a new tie or that sort of thing. So 
that's where retailers like JCPenney do have a, a decided advantage over Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. And then once we uh, once the consumer is in the store, uh, you know, then if he indeed uh, has installed the app on his uh, his phone, there's basically there are more opportunities for the retailer uh, in the on the app. Uh, you know, the consumer could uh, store information about his or her size, you know, the length of the arm for the shirt, the width of the neck for the shirt. And when he interacts with the salesperson, that information can then be very quickly available to the salesperson to give some recommendation about what kind of additional products the uh, consumer may be interested in. So um, in, in the course then, or the courses that you're teaching, um, you obviously talk to and, and, and discuss these theories with, uh, with a, lot of, um, a lot of students that have a very good pulse on, on the very latest in uh, marketing trends. So when, uh, when you have these discussions in class, what are some of the, I guess, what are some of the, the interesting questions that you're fielding from students um, or maybe a um, is there maybe a debate that you've had in class lately of um, of strategy and and digital marketing that's that's I guess um, surprising you as as being such an expert in in the field uh, yeah one uh, uh, one surprise to me uh, was that um, you know, many of these uh, methods that uh, we know from research have not always uh, reached the consumer level uh, yet. For example, uh, again, an interaction with the app would be uh, that uh, stores can now basically identify if you come into the store, you open the app, and uh, they could send you instant uh, promotions, for example. They could send you instant promotions based on what you have purchased before. And when you are in the store, you're more likely to then uh, take advantage of these uh, these promotions. Uh, I have had uh, discussions in class uh, about this, and not many uh, students have experience with this. But, uh, for example, in the uh, cosmetic uh, uh, in the cosmetic area, uh, Sephora apparently uses this uh, already in Orlando even. Uh, you know, it could be that uh, in bigger markets like New York or Los Angeles or Chicago, uh, more stores actually use, um, you know, the key, uh, geo- uh, geographic-based uh, promotions. And uh, But here, basically, uh, I was um, surprised that only in the cosmetics area, when you enter a Sephora store, depending on where you are in the aisle, you may actually get a promotion for, um, you know, a cosmetic item that you haven't purchased for a while, maybe something that would be complementary to another item that you, that you purchased recently. Uh, you know, those kinds of things uh, provide good opportunities for marketers to make additional sales. And at the same time, uh, also help consumers um, to be in the best position they can be in. Uh, so I wouldn't necessarily always think about promotions as, as something where 
the marketer basically is trying to take advantage of the consumer. It is also providing value to consumers who may have forgotten that, you know, they ran out of a particular item at home, uh, but uh, the marketer actually can track when they last purchased the item so they can remind consumers whether they actually need to uh, purchase an additional cleanser or additional moisturizing cream or something like that. So what you're saying then is uh, retailers are able to market to consumers not in a, a, uh, a distracting or um, a, a disruptive way. I mean, I, I think of if I'm, if I'm walking around a store and I get a push notification that, you know, towels are on sale and I'm on the other side of the, the store and I have shown no interest in towels, I might find that um, kind of distracting because it's it's interrupting my shopping experience. But I would find it helpful, yeah, like like the example you used of, of um, you know, a, a sale or a coupon on, on foundation or even getting to the, um, you know, going to checkout and it, you know, pushes a, you know, $10 off of 50 uh, coupon for me. That's something that I would, I'd find tremendously helpful. And it, it, I guess it's how it's done, right? And, and how the, how consumers, or I'm sorry, how retailers can make it about being helpful to the customer instead of uh, being pushy or, um, or, or quite transparently, like kind of freaking them out, you know, like, you know, Hey, I saw you haven't bought this in a while. Do you, are you sure you don't need any? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, and and then again, you know, you mentioned when you are in the store, you are already in a shopping mode. So uh, one thing you can also compare that to is sitting at home and watching TV and you watch a movie and you're not in a shopping mode, but then a commercial break comes on and you see all these products uh, and services being advertised. And at that time, you are not even, uh, even less receptive, you know. Axel, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thanks to you listeners for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to find out more and listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries. Subscribe to articles, podcasts, and creative video. Until next time, I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk.